Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. This is the Commonwealth Club of California. Find us on the Internet at www.commonwealthclub.org. I'm Ann Clark, a member of the Commonwealth Club and chair of the Environment and Natural Resources member-led forum. Our program tonight is California Wildfires, Community and Water Supply Protection, with Kimmery Wiltshire, President and CEO, Carpe Diem West, and Jennifer Montgomery, Director, California Forest Management, and Marguerite Young, Board President, East Bay Municipal Utilities. We will begin with Kimmery, and she will talk with us and our guests. Thanks so much, Anne. So I want to thank uh, all of you for being here tonight. Uh, it is certainly a wet one out there, but I'd like to think that this is auspicious. So um, all of us here in Northern California have been inhaling a lot of wildfire smoke over the past couple of years. And from what we know about uh, climate change impacts in the American West and around the world, we're going to be inhaling a lot, lot more smoke. So I think all of us have got a good sense about catastrophic wildfires and what those are doing um, to the land, wildlife, our lungs. What we're going to be talking a little bit more tonight, or in, in addition to talking about what communities are doing across California about these wildfires, we're also going to be talking about what, why we also need to look at protecting the sources of our water. Because in California, as one example, a little over 60% of our water comes from the Sierra Nevada mountains. That's the source of it. And to a certain extent, from Mount Shasta and the Trinity Alps. And that's true for pretty much um, all across the West. Most of our water comes from high forested um, headwater systems. So we're going to be talking about that tonight. And of course, we've got two really terrific experts here who can um, really kind of walk us through both what the state is doing and then what a, a really uh, large um uh, water utility here in the Bay Area is doing. So um, first we're going to um, uh, hear from Jennifer Montgomery, who up until the governor tapped her on the shoulders, uh, or, or one shoulder, uh, <laughs> uh, back in March, uh, for years was a supervisor in uh, Placer County. And for those of you who have driven up to Tahoe on a regular basis know that Placer County is one of those counties that has a lot of really dry forests um, in it. And Marguerite is going to, is now the governor's uh, appointee. She directs the um, forest management task force um, for the state of California and um, has been working with folks around the state, looking at community um Actions that communities can take um, to protect their communities, their water sources, uh, in the face, again, of these catastrophic wildfires that we're seeing. Uh, Marguerite Young um, is the president, as you know, of East Bay Municipal Utility District. Um, and her, um, her day job, which I'm not quite sure how she has time for her day job, but her day job is she's head of corporate responsibility for the Service uh, Employees International Union. Um, and if you ever need to find Marguerite um, during the summer, just go out uh, to some river in California or in the West, and you can uh, yell from the banks as she is kayaking um, 
kayaking past you. So um, we're going to start with Jennifer and um, what the how the state of California is looking at and the actions that they're taking around catastrophic wildfire and protecting communities and water supply. So Jennifer. Thank you. Um, pleasure to see you all. Thank you all for coming out on this dark and stormy night. I appreciate it. Uh, just very quick background about myself. Uh, I did grow up here in the San Francisco Bay Area. My father was an avid backpacker, and so I spent every summer in the Sierra Nevada backpacking. Um, when I was 12, I did the John Muir Trail for the first time. Wow. And um, so I've had a, a real love, a real passion for the Sierra Nevada for my entire life. Um, in fact, there's a, a picture of me uh, in utero, my mother climbing in uh, half um, um, Twomley Meadows, actually. So um, this is something that is just absolutely near and dear to my heart. I uh, live on Donner Summit, so I'm a, a resident of the WUI or the Wildland Urban Interface. And so it's very, very literally very close to me, the questions around forest management and how do we manage for fire and how do we manage for water and watersheds and how do we manage for the three pillars of community protection and public safety, uh, resource protection and enhancement, uh, meaning our forests and the plants and animals that live within them. And then third, but certainly not least, is uh, economic development. How do we approach forest management. And when I say forest management, that's kind of shorthand for California wildlands. It's not just a question of forests. As we know, we've seen in Santa Barbara, there's chaparral fires. We've seen oak woodland fires. So when I say forest, think California wildlands writ large, because it applies to all of it, honestly. Um, so I have been working for the state of California as the director of the Forest Management Task Force since April 2nd. Uh, they did not hire me on April 1st, which is good. I would have been a little concerned about showing up on that date. Um, but the state, um, prior to my arrival and then since then, has been doing a number of things. I want to talk sort of specifically about watersheds and what we're doing around watershed protection, because watersheds our infrastructure, and they are actually called out in California uh, legislation as green infrastructure, something that we need to protect in the same way that we need to protect roadways and bridges and um, telecommunications equipment. But uh, while we can live without telecommunications equipment, we can't live without watersheds and the water that comes from those watersheds. Um, as as um, was pointed out earlier, about 60% of the water that is potable and used in California and is used for um, uh, environmental purposes, for fisheries, for um, farming and, and other um, uh, resources such as that, comes from the Sierra Nevada and the Cascade. And so it was really, um, it was really a breakthrough when the state recognized our watersheds as infrastructure, as something that was physical and tangible and needed to be protected. So a number of the things, I have to put my glasses on because I'm, I'm at that age where I can't say anything unless it's about 40 feet away. Um, so a number of the things that the state has been doing in conjunction with a lot of partners. Um, we have a project that I actually worked on as a county supervisor in Placer County. 
uh, working with the Placer County Water Agency, with CAL FIRE, with the U.S. Forest Service, with uh, a number of other nonprofit and environmental partners, and with the County of Placer called the French Meadows Project. And it is a restoration project. It is a landscape-scale restoration project that is being driven by the Placer County Water Agency because they recognize the value of their asset. And they recognize that if we do good science-based forestry work in that asset before we have a fire, it is going to be much more resilient to fire. And it is going to be much more productive as a water source. And so that's one of the things that the state has been working on. Um, I left on your seats and I'm not going to go through it because I'm just going to assume you can all read. But I left on your seats um, this uh, handout from the Sierra Nevada Conservancy, which is a state agency. It's titled Building Resilience in the Sierra Nevada. It's called the Watershed Improvement Program. It's one of the first real science-based watershed programs that the state put together and the really good news about it is while it's focused on the Sierra Nevada, it, the, the information here can be used to extrapolate to any other watershed in California. And the state is now using this, which was a model for how we best manage forests for community resilience, for recreation and tourism, for um, land conservation, um, and for a resource for, as, as I said earlier, the plants and animals in our forests. Um, so this is something just take home. I'm not going to go over it bit by bit, but it's really a model that the state has adopted and we're working with other partners to try to figure out how to implement, we call it the WIP, uh, the Watershed Improvement Program, how we implement that throughout the state. Some of the ways that we're doing that is through a program that has been funded through the state, which is our Watershed Coordinator Program. We started the Watershed Coordinator Program a few years ago, and it is my hope that as uh, we move forward into the next year's budget cycle, we're going to see more dollars associated with that to keep the Watershed Coordinator Program up and running, but also to enhance it. Right now, it's in about eight uh, different watersheds in California. I would love to see that expanded to you know, every watershed in California. And what we've done is we've provided grant money to local people on the ground um, who have existing knowledge of their watersheds, uh, who can help us plan and implement projects for better watershed health. That's one of the things the uh, state has been doing. The other project that we're really working on is um, called the Regional Fire and Forest Capacity Program. It's a mouthful, so I just call it the RIFSIP. I don't know if that's actually any easier, but... <laughs> It's simpler in my mind. Um, and what that is, is it's actually similar to the watershed coordinators program, and it works very closely with the watershed coordinators. The idea is, again, we identify people locally, regionally in their own communities who have experience, who have capacity. We give them grant money. And they work with other people in their communities to build capacity. So we take people who have existing capacity and we ask them to work with other people in their communities to help build larger regional capacity. The RIFSIP is focused on fire, but it is also focused on watershed protection. And it is focused, as you can tell from the name, on capacity building in communities. So that's something that is, um, I think, uh, again, very helpful that we're going to see more dollars for that moving forward. Uh, we have about 
$2 million, um, not left over, but as yet unallocated. I'm hopeful that in January, I can sort of roll some of those out, working very closely with tribes and other people who live, again, on the ground in the community and have an understanding of where they need to go. Um, the other thing that I'm pushing very strongly for, and it's been received very well by the uh, Department of Finance, which is the first hurdle at the state, is um, some additional dollars for upper watershed restoration. We have a lot of dollars focused on fire and forest management, per se, uh, work that CAL FIRE does. What we haven't focused a lot on in the past here in California is upper watershed management, meadow restoration, and stream uh, restoration as well. And, you know, those are the arteries. Those are the lifeblood of California. So we're really focusing on that. And the way I'm pitching it to the state and the way I'm pitching it to the Department of Finance is that this is a, p a proposal that will support um, the framework of the, the water portfolio, which was just mm -hmm. released recently yeah. here in California. Um, but I'm calling it, because I, I like to make up silly names for things, this is a forests to faucets, fisheries, <laughs> and farmers model that benefits us all. So that's just some of what California Can you make an acronym out of that? I, uh, it's <laughs> Okay, there we go. So that's that's um, uh, that's some of what California has been working mm -hmm. on. There's a lot mm -hmm. of other things, but these are the things that are probably most germane to what I do as the director of the Forest Management Task Great. Force. Great. Thank you. My Thank pleasure. You. Thank okay. you. Marguerite. Great. Thank you all for coming out tonight. Um, uh, I am the president of the board of East Bay Mud. I was elected in 2014, so I'm in my fifth uh, fifth year of service, um, East Bay Municipal Utility District, or East Bay Mud, as we like to call it, um, is the second largest uh, retail water utility in the state of California, hmm. just behind Los Angeles. Hmm. Um, we, uh, I like to say, we go actually from the summit to the sea. Oh, nice. Um, watershed to water tap, I don't know, however you want to say it. 1.5 million people in Alameda and Contra Costa County, as well as um, industries like um, Chevron and the um, growing marijuana cult cannabis cultivation industry in the state. Um, <clears throat> uh, we serve, you know, communities of Oakland, Oakland, uh, San Leandro, Richmond, Berkeley, all the East Bay uh you know, uh, west side of the hills, as well as communities like Lafayette, Arinda, Moraga, um, Danville, and Alamo. How many of you, any of you, make the trek across the bridge and live in the East Bay? Okay. I made the trek. All right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so our water comes from the McCullamy River, about 90% of it. Um, and I, oh, we've got the, the map up. up on the screen. So you can see if you, if you ski at Kirkwood, you've ridden our river. Um, you've ridden your drinking water. Um, we go all the way from the uh, Alpine County, top of Alpine Summit in Alpine County, um, down to Party Reservoir, um, and then 90 miles by gravity to um, the communities that we serve in the East Bay. Um, uh, our upper watershed, which is the green area, um, uh, we only own and manage about 3% of that directly, just the area right around where it says Pardee, uh, Pardee Reservoir. Um, so we rely on um, partnerships and 
um, good relationships with um, counties and water agencies and the uh, Forest Service and BLM um, to to protect our watershed. Um, <clears throat> it's very high quality water. So if you, I think it's better than San Francisco's. Um, uh, uh, that is um, because we have uh, high quality Sierra snowmelt. We augment that with water local water supply that um, falls in our service area and is captured in um, several reservoirs, which is also pretty high quality because we put a lot of effort into um, protecting protecting our watershed. Um, the McCullough River works really hard, as most rivers in California do, mm -hmm. um, in addition to supplying folks with drinking water, both in the foothills as well as in our service area. Um, it irrigates fields in the San Joaquin Valley and vineyards in the foothills. Um, it generate we generate 185,000 megawatts of electricity each year from Part E, um, and PG&E operates seven of its most profitable um, hydroelectric facilities on the McCullough above our reservoir. Um, and the thing that most people don't know is that our river and the management that we do on it. Um, is responsible for 43% of the commercial salmon fishery in the state of California and 35% of the recreational salmon fishery in California. Um, given that our um, flows from our river are just 2% 2, 2 of, this, of the flows coming out of the Sierra, that's mm -hmm. a fairly remarkable, um, remarkable um, statistic. Um, and lastly, um, the river is an incredible scenic and recreational resource and has just been designated, again, through a collective effort of many years in coming, uh, designated 37 miles of the river to uh, as wild and scenic under the state wild and scenic system. Um, so we're, it's, it's a resource that um, we are dedicated to protecting. Um, both because we want to maintain our water quality, but also because it's an incredible natural uh, resource that we feel um, compelled to protect um, as part of our heritage. Um, and the, the changing fire landscape is something we're spending a lot of time thinking about, both locally in our um, uh, because our watershed is right in the um, uh, wildland interface um, and also in the upper watershed. Um, and uh, thankfully, since we didn't get to talk before much before this, um, I just want to review a little bit of the, some of the impacts that we're most um, concerned about. Obviously, increased runoff and erosion from um, charred landscapes, um, increased sediments and organic matter that end up flowing down um, river into our treatment plants and cause taste and odor problems, as well as other treatment challenges. So they imp can impact our water quality. Um, can also obviously be detrimental to um, fish habitat and health. Um, we've been pretty fortunate up until now. We had a big fire in 2015, that um, the Butte Fire, which burned about 10% of our watershed, only a few miles upstream from our Pardee Reservoir. So the, the impacts could have been quite damaging, um, but um, a couple of things mitigated that. One is that um, 
we had begun or through, well, I'll talk a little bit later, but um, some forest treatment that we had done um, prevented the fire from expanding beyond where it did. Um, and um, our staff and others in the community and our partners throughout the watershed um, were quick to uh, do post remediation efforts that, and you know, we lucked out and it didn't rain for six weeks <laughs> after the fire was over. And so we were able to get um, initial growth back and it really, really helped reduce the amount of sediments going down into the river. Um, uh, but we know that, you know, that we were lucky um, and that we might not be as lucky next time. Um, second, um, fire impairs are the ability of our watershed to act like a sponge. It was a little bit about what Jennifer was talking about. Um, and there's, you know, data to support that forest treatment um, and meadow restoration, et cetera, can improve the water holding capacity of soils and act like a, a bank um, for us. And if we're losing snowpack, that anything we can do to make our, our uh, upper watershed lands work harder to provide water supply is going to help us in the future. Um, and burn soil doesn't do that very well. Um, if you, you know, some of these very, very hot fires can burn down, you know, eight or nine inches into the soil and that really destroys that sponge capacity. Um, the third impact is the new one, power shutoffs. Um, uh, PG&E's um, uh, impact or, or precautionary power shutoffs to prevent fires, um, because they happen in the most fire prone areas, um, as a water for us locally, I mean, our, our upper watershed communities were impacted by the power shutoffs, but our service area was impacted, um, in ways that people may not realize because our water service never got interrupted. Um, 40% of our pumping plants and two thirds of our water treatment, um, facilities were impacted um, more than two, that's more than 200 actual, uh, sites in our, in our watershed. Um, it cost us $1.1 million just for the first event, just for the October event to keep the water flowing in our district. And that doesn't include our fuel costs for running diesel generators. And it doesn't include the greenhouse gas emissions from running diesel generators, um, to keep to keep the water running, not just for our customers, but also for um, firefighting because we were shutting off our facility. Our, our, the power was being shut off in facilities where the water's needed to fight fires because it's in the wildland um, interface. And we could have had a Oakland Hills fire on any of those events, which, or a, we had a fire in Moraga actually in an area where the uh, power outages were. Um, so that's number three. Number four, it has impacted our employees um, in several ways. Um, as Kimmery mentioned, we've all been inhaling the smoke, but imagine being out digging trenches or having to cover um, several miles of terrain reading meters in the midst of 300 part per million um, particulate, PM25, um, uh, air quality. So we've had to adjust our work rules, which means that our, some of our workforce has had to, you know, go off lost time, um, et cetera. We've had employees, we had employees in Butte Fire lose homes. Um, and um, we've dispatched staff 
to um, respond to fire recovery efforts like the um, like the campfire. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are we doing? What else are we doing? Uh, is that we have um, a number of um, efforts that we've undertaken. As I said, we consider ourselves to be fortunate, but we are no by no means immune to the potential for a devastating fire striking our lower local or our upper watershed. Um, and our strategic plan um, addresses watershed stewardship, capital improvements, and operational changes to help our agency be adaptive and resilient to fire. Um, 20 years ago, we um, established the Upper McCullumy River Watershed Authority to um, as a joint powers authority with um, the counties of Amador, Calaveras, and Alpine, as well as all of the water agencies that are on the Mo, the McCullumy, which includes um, upcountry water agencies, but also um, some of the ones um, down down below as well, to work cooperatively to um, uh, do water resource planning for the region, um, facilitate forest um, uh, fuels reduction and restoration projects, and to raise money and leverage state and federal funds. It's been quite successful. Um, uh, to date, we've res- we've treated 4,000 acres uh, out of the 14,000 acres that we've identified as being impaired, and there are um, more plans in the works um, on our own watershed land. So that most of that takes place in um, the uh, you know public um, publicly owned um, Forest Service and BLM. Um, lands on our own watershed, um, we allocate about $650,000 each year to um, improving our wildlands and forest health. Um, it's about equally split between our upper and lower watershed. Um, and we do, um, you know, we're doing long-term planning for the power, for more power shutoff events. We've been told, as you all know, it's another 10 years of it. We started working on our plans for the power shutoffs a year ago. So a year before it happened. And, and that's why, um, we were so well prepared. And I just want to do a little shout out to Kelly Zito, our public information officer for the outstanding communication that she and her staff did to our, um, to our customers. Um, uh, I just, I felt very proud to be a member of East Bay Med Board in the midst of the chaos of people like folks like Caltrans not being sure, not knowing that they couldn't run the Caldecott tunnel, um, uh, <laughs> during, during the power outage. Um, uh, and then, um, we are also on the long term upgrading our treatment plants. Um, the, you know, the results of climate change are that we don't, we aren't sure we're going to be able to get what we need all the way from the McCullumy. So we have, um, you know, uh, agreements in place or contracts in place to take water, um, from other sources. We've made agreements with Placer County Water Agency and Yuba and others and rice farmers in the Sacramento Valley to supplement, um, our supplies during drought. But, and so that helps on that side, but we we're also upgrading our treatment facilities so that we could treat water that isn't this, you know, in the really unfortunate event of our McCullumy supplies being degraded either temporarily or more permanently, um, that we're able to treat, um, you know, variable water quality through our, um, through our plants. And the, the upside of that, the downside is that it'll be because our, our, 
we're, we're messing up on our long-term goals of, of saving our planet. Um, <laughs> um, but we will not have to use as many chemicals to treat our water once those mm-hmm. treatment upgrades are, are in place. And then, um, uh, finally, we're also, you know, looking at our workforce and what kind of demands um, we need to put in place, protections and, and changes we need to put in place mm-hmm. to make sure they're um, in a good place on fire. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. I'd actually like to uh, talk a little bit about you know, this whole issue of, um, posts, uh, posts, you have a big, big wildfire, rains come, sediment goes into the river, goes into the water supply. And we, you know, we've been kind of lucky here in California because so far, I mean, I, I know that with the Kincaid fire, um, I know that there are, um, warnings out right now because of, the big rains that are happening and um, sediment getting uh, dumped uh, downstream from that burn area. Santa Barbara is probably in even more trouble than it was before because most of their water supply comes off the Los Padres National Forest. And as you know, there's yet another big fire um, up there in the Los Padres National Forest to the east of Santa Barbara. But Overall, we've kind of lucked out so far in California, as Marguerite was saying, you know, after the Butte fire, it didn't rain for six weeks, which was huge. And it allowed folks to get in there um, and do the kind of uh, immediate restoration work that needed um, to happen. What we're seeing in other places around the West, though, um, are probably what we need to start thinking about here more in California. For instance, um, in Denver, you know, so you've got the Rockies, the water towers of the West, and Denver um, has an, any number of reservoirs up in those mountains. They had a really big fire up there a couple of years ago, and then they had a rain, a rain, rain event huge amounts of sediment going into one of their reservoirs, not their only reservoir, but an important one. And, and that sediment, unfortunately, keeps coming because the lands up above that have burned, there's, there's a water event and there's a rain event and the sediment keeps going into this one reservoir. So far, um, Denver Water has spent about $42 million to dredge that reservoir. So that's just, again, one reservoir. In um, New Mexico, and I don't know how many of you remember the Los Conscious Fire, which was just this horrible fire that took out, uh, it took out a world famous apple farm and it, um, did really nasty things to farmlands that the Pueblos had on the, on the, um, west side of the Rio Grande. Los Conchas fire happens, the rains come, the, and, and there the monsoon rains, uh, come and the Rio Grande, um, ran black for Days and Albuquerque Water, as a matter of fact, had to shut off their intake pipe um, into the Rio Grande um, because nobody could drink that water. 
And then probably the a third um, sort of instructive example is what happened with Phoenix Water. And, you know, Phoenix, as you may know, has one of the state-of-the-art um, uh, treatment systems um, uh, on 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 their on on their uh, on their water on their river on the Salt um, and the Verde River, they had a fire um, uh, up one up one creek, big uh, sediment load monsoons once more, and that um, that almost uh, led to a boil water or, or order for all of Phoenix and. The water that in um, that was provided for the rest of Maricopa County. So again, I think we've kind of lucked out here in California. So I know that, um, especially with East Bay Mud and other water agencies, are really starting to think ahead of, uh, about this and how we get ahead of the curve. Could you talk a little bit more about that, Marguerite? And then Jennifer, if you could talk a little bit about what you see communities doing to make sure that that after catastrophic wildfire um, uh, work happens to keep those kind of sediment loads from going into the system. Um, so let me talk about the two, the two ends. Yeah, um, the two ends. Because there's the treatment the, at, at the end of the day, our primary duty is to provide clean, safe water to all of our customers 24, mm-hmm. seven, 365. Um, so the, the what we put in place in treatment, I mean, historically, you know, we've had this, we have this great water. We never worry about yeah. uh, about it, and our treatment regimen is set up basically to deal with a very small variation in in water supply. Not universally, but our biggest treatment plant, our biggest two biggest treatment plants, are both set up basically to take the water as it's coming down the hill and you know, zap it and send it, um, uh, zap it with, with chlorine basically, um, and, and do a minimal mm-hmm. amount of filtration because it doesn't need that much. Mm-hmm. Um, what we see in the future is both that we'll need to take water, you know, from the, from, um, uh, further downstream from other sources, um, that our local source water quality may change. And in drought, you know, the water quality just is not as good because there isn't as much of it. Um, and there's more sediment, you know, there's less water mm-hmm. for the sediment to create more total organic mm-hmm. compounds. Um, uh, you know, and then, in, you know, fire would is another, um, you know, reason for that source water change. So we've got to be prepared for all of those eventualities. So we're putting in place, um, ultraviolet disinfection, um, on top of, and then in other, at other plants, we have ozone, but it basically the idea is to widen the band of source water that we can treat so that we're able to still serve our customers, um, water. Now that water isn't going to taste as good as what we have now. So, um, you know, it, it's not ideal. Um, and, on top of that, the more that we can do to invest in source water protection um, now, the more payoff there will mm-hmm. be, you know, down the road. And I know that there's there's lots of you know um, work going on out there. There's folks that are trying to big, figure out how to get private investors to um, engage in forest conservation and and get that long term payoff, um, like blue forest uh, conservation. Um, just in the room. Um, and, um, and our UMRA 
um, uh, partnership, which started actually in an effort in a uh, in 2000, we thought that um, PG&E was going to put up their McCullumy, uh hydro system on the on the chopping block during their last bankruptcy. Um, and so this group organized in order to make a bid to take over those PG&E assets. Um, didn't turn out that way. Um, but in the process, we found reason to work together to, um, you know, develop um, and protect and steward um, the assets of the region together. Um, uh, and that's what's, you know, so now resulted in um, this, uh, you know, watershed conservation work that we're doing, which has both been had a payoff downstream for fisheries as well as upstream in um, some of the projects that we've undertaken. Mm-hmm. So um, as to the question you raised for me, one of the things I really think it's always critically important to point out when we talk about wildfire and watersheds and that intersection is we have a perception that somehow our watersheds are these pristine environments without any other th- things, you know, than than we would expect in nature. What we're finding is when we have these kinds of fires and watersheds, because we have had so much conversion of forested lands and other natural lands to, like where I live on Donner Summit, subdivisions in in places we would never have thought of, when we have what we characterize as wildfires, these are house fires as well on a massive scale. And it's cars burning up and it's toxins getting into those watersheds. So it's more than just an issue of sedimentation, and figuring out how to make things not taste bad. Um, It's a question of recognizing that we need to start thinking very differently about what we mean when we say wildfire and what we picture. I think paradise is probably a perfect example of that. The water system in paradise um, had a number of issues that, that arose from that particular fire. And this is the community piece. So I'm not, I'm not avoiding your question. Um, uh, what they discovered in Paradise was a lot of the pipes in that community were plastic, and they were plastic because less expensive than metal, um, replaced a lot of the old clay pipes in a lot of communities that had mm-hmm. clay pipes. A lot of places had lead pipe that was replaced, thank goodness, because there's some downsides <laughs> to that. But what happened is when the fire came through, they actually found situations where the plastic piping melted into the ground. So in addition to having to pull all that piping out and replace it, they have now had some issues with soil contamination because that all leached into the soil. So every time the rains come through, you're going to get this microscopic but impactful leaching of those plastic chemicals into the into the water, into the ground, and then out into our drinking supply. So one of the things that communities are thinking about is how do you harden the infrastructure of the existing infrastructure? It is not cheap. And, and a lot of the communities that are grappling with this are, are rural communities that don't have a lot of money. You know, they may have put their water systems in 20, 30, 100 years ago. And they have people generally in many of these areas on fixed incomes, um, people with disabilities, people who can't figure out, you know, how to fund the necessary work that needs to be done to replace entire water systems to prepare for that next fire. 
Um, so that's something that folks are struggling with. And I know that <laughs> the state of California, the feds, you know, have some opportunities for, for grant dollars. I always encourage cities, counties, special districts like East Bay Mud to really be on the lookout for that and figure out how to be ready for it. Um, one of the things that I always encourage people to do around trying to protect their communities, whether it's from fire or the after impacts of fire, is identify somebody in your community who's a good grant writer and get them lined up and ready to go and get them lined up um, looking at the broad spectrum of grants that are available out there so that if you see something that makes sense for your community, you're ready to jump on it. And, and you don't have to suddenly be, you know, trying to pull all your paperwork together to figure out how to meet a grant deadline. Mm -hmm. That's probably one of the best things that, that I would encourage communities to do. Identify that grant writer, someone with that capacity, and get your ducks in a row so that when that, you know, holy grail of grants becomes available, you're ready to apply. And that's what I'd say has been, I mean, really that we started in 2000 with AMRA, um, it was fortuitous because we were in, we were say ready what, to go. AMRA is. Uh, Upper McCullough, I said it once, I'll better say it. <laughs> yeah. Upper McCullough River Watershed Authority, mm -hmm. Umrah, uh, um, uh, is this collection of, you know, agencies where, you know, we, we have the deep pocket in that bunch. Um, and we do, you know, finance a lot of the ongoing budget of that um, entity. You might say it's kind of reparations for 90 years of, of, the, of using that water. Um, uh, is investing in that concert, but we were ready to go for these grants. And we've been, you know, we sort of have a, a grant writing, you know, machine um, now in place. And I think that's very, that's one of the, the best things about um, establishing these ongoing partnerships among all of the affected parties is to find that common ground and to be ready. Because after the fire, you know, it's almost too late. And if you look, I mean, even if you look up at, this is sort of on my actually day job. Um, uh, you know, if you look at the Mendocino, the difference between Mendocino and Lake County in terms of their ability to respond to the fires that they have had, um, you know, well, Lake County has been hit more times than Mendocino. Um, but they are, they're now at the point where they actually have a resilience plan. They're, they're, they're now set up to be able to deal with that. Um, ongoing infrastructure, whereas Mendocino is really just still trying to um, get themselves off the ground. We've come to that time for our audience questions, and I hope we can continue on, on the conversation that we've had now. And I think with the questions that we have, we'll be able to come and hear some more from the people, uh, people in our audience. So thank you and for now, but we are continuing because we have some very good questions. The first question is, what is the effect of red fire retardant on water? Effect on nature, fish, agriculture? How removed, I think it says. How is it removed from? <laughs> that looks like it. Before drinking. Oh, how is before, it removed before drinking. drinking. Great. So let's start with that one and hear from our panel. Um, so I can just give you a brief overview of the red fire retardant. It's a um, biodegradable I, I don't remember the exact component, um, but it is biodegradable. It basically, um, it, it's going to stay and stain the land until the rains come, and then it basically washes away. 
I don't know how it's removed from water. Um, our treatment regime is, um, I mean, I, I don't know that we've detected it in our water supply of the breakdown products, but I mean, we have a, um, you know, a treatment, multi-barrier treatment that um, ends up having our water meet all of the safe drinking water standards. Um, I, I can't actually speak to the, as a part-time board member, I can't actually speak to how it act, how it specifically um, is addressed, but we treat for 80-something different uh, chem, uh, contaminants that we have to meet standards for. Our next question is, what can we do as individual citizens? And perhaps each of you will share with us with what you think we can do. Uh, I'm just going to assume the question means what can we do individually around protecting watersheds and uh, fire and forest management? Because it's... Um, so my suggestion, I have a, a ton of them. I, I think the first and the most important one is if you own a home or if you own a building, make sure you are doing your defensible space work. Um, that is the most effective thing that you can do, which is, you know, raking uh, materials, flammable materials away from your home. If you have your firewood stacked up next to your house, move it away from your house. Um, it's nothing but a big torch uh, when the fires come. What we're really starting to understand more clearly is that there's a huge component of home hardening or structure hardening that is probably going to be necessary for the changing world of fire that we see now. These are what we're calling these ember-driven fires, where the embers are lofted up into the air in Australia. In the recent fires there, they were seeing embers traveling as far as seven and eight miles. Um, what that means is we need to think about how we harden our homes, the structure of our homes, as well as protect around it. So um, metal roofing or composite shingle roofing rather than those beautiful old wood roofs, uh, making sure that if you have vents uh, so that your house breathes, you have very fine mesh over that so embers cannot get into the home double pane windows. None of this is cheap. Uh, replacing wooden decks. Um, but it's a new world we find ourselves in for fire. And so we are just going to have to learn to take different approaches to it. Um, and I would, I'll, I'll add the, um, in addition to what you can do as an individual in your own space is advocate for policies um, that will protect all Californians because as she said, not everybody, I mean, a lot of the people that are most will be most impacted mm -hmm. and least able to recover have no ability to yep. do any of the things that Jennifer just talked about. Um, but we need to figure out how all of us can move through this. Right. Um, and I think it's going to mean, um, you know, it's going to be more taxes for those that, 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 that can afford it. Um, and finding ways to think about, we have to think about this in the same way that we think about all of the adaptation, all that we're doing to pay down, uh, or bring down our greenhouse gas emissions. We also need to think about the investments that we need to make to adapt to our changing climate and to build in that resilience for all of us. Um, and I think that's um, probably the, the the most important thing that we can that uh, we can do as individuals is to be engaged in the civic 
uh, the civic life, as well as if you're able to, yeah. to do the hardening, to um, take the action. And, and I would also look and see if in your community, if there's an existing fire safe council, fire safe councils are sort of local uh, groups that are really trying to think about how to make not just individual homes, but entire communities safer. And, you know, you can go out and you can do a weed pulling day with the fire safe council. If you don't have a fire safe council in your neighborhood or in your community, go online, look it up, get a hold of their state organization and say, hey, how do I found my own fire safe council? What do I need to do to make that happen? Usually your county can help you with that. And resource conservation districts can often also help you with that. And OES is now, I mean, there's money starting to come come down um, to uh, fund uh, fund that kind of work mm-hmm. as well. Uh, Kimberly, do you have um, some things to share with us? I know you do. You know, I was just I was just thinking. You know, you were um, mentioning earlier, Anne, about what do we have to look forward to? Um, you know, how how do we? Um, what are the positive things that uh, are happening out there? And I want to say that there's there's a couple of examples of what we're seeing. You know, we think about California and we think about, oh, well, the California water wars and, you know, here's East Bay mud stealing water from the McCullamy and here's, um, you know, Los Angeles stealing water from everywhere. And... Um, and, and and the list goes on and on. What we're what we're seeing though, and and not just in California, but also around the West, are some really great partnerships that are happening. That in many in in many times are sort of unusual partners, um, but um, uh, there are no solo acts in the time of climate change, and it uh, folks need to come together and to work together and to figure out ways of working together in ways that they haven't before. And I'm thinking of the French Meadows Project, for example, and um, the attitude of uh, most water agencies historically around the West has been, ah, that's the Forest Service's job. They need to go figure that stuff out. Well, um, the folks uh, in Placer County and their partners, um, they went the next step further and they started sitting down, talking with each other and saying, okay, well, this is what I need. What do you need? And we're not just talking about the water agency. We're talking about the Forest Service, the local landowners, the uh, economic development folks um, in the county, the environmentalists. And from that, for the French Meadows Project, which is, you know, one of the poster childs for California um, right now, um, 28,000 acres in an incredibly important watershed that provides water um, downstream for all kinds of folks, um, has so far raised um, about $14 million. And that $14 million came about, about because it was a group of folks that looked at the issue from different points of view and different angles and brought different ideas and expertise to the table. So that's, um, that is a huge partnership, um, and a great example for, um, for California. Um, and as we think about, uh, moving forward, you know, um, historically, um, again, you know, everybody uh, in the upper McCullamy watershed pretty much hated everybody in the Bay Area because once again, they were stealing our water. Well, now that group, the, the Umbra, 
um, has really changed that um, around, where, again, folks are working together, folks that historically have not worked together, and there's a real sense of partnership and that we're all in this together and we need to figure it out together. Marguerite, this is a question to you, and this is, um, why is East Bay mud water quality better? Infrastructure treatment, source, some other reason? All of the above. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, it's the 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 water. You East know, Bay it, mud. <laughs> not, not San Francisco. Right, not money, right? Uh, why is it better? If, why is it better than San Francisco? That's just that's just friendly competition. Um, I mean, both San Francisco and the uh, East Bay mud um, enjoy High Sierra a High Sierra yeah. source. I mean. Yeah. I, you know, it, I think it's true that increasingly there's development. Our watershed is pretty undeveloped. Um, uh, uh, and so we're not, we don't have, in terms of our source water assessment, we don't have the same kind of um, contamination concerns that some other mm-hmm. um, entities do. We um, put a lot of effort into protecting our local watershed, our local water source, um, and then we have, um, I, you know, I, I think I've been around nonprofits and government agencies for um, pretty much all of my adult life. And I can honestly say that I have never been associated with an agency that was more committed and focused on establishing um, a long range strategic plan and then managing to it. Every day, every week, I mean, there isn't a single person on our staff who doesn't know what the performance metric is for their job and what they're doing and who can't talk about where they're at in achieving that. And so I think it's, you know, it's a combination of the things that we do, but it wouldn't be, it wouldn't work Mm -hmm. if it weren't for the people Mm -hmm. that, that do it. Uh, Kimmery, what type of collaboration and resources do you see or need to address the problem of scale? Scale? Is it scale? And across California, Sierra Nevada. Can I expand that out to the West? You may do that. Oh, thank you. (laughs) So what we've seen historically um, across the West, not as much in California, but across the West are um, over the past decade are downstream water utilities um, investing in restoring, uh, making healthier these forests upstream, which are the source of their drinking water supply downstream. And that was a huge step forward because as I said a little bit ago, you know, historically water utilities have said, ah, that's the forest services job. Well, of course, the two things have happened with the Forest Service. One is that they um, they do not have the budget that they used to have, which is a huge problem that has not been addressed. But the other thing is that these fires are just getting bigger, hotter, faster, larger, um, and they just don't have the resources to do the kind of restoration work that needs to happen at the same time, uh, they're putting these fires out. So, um, that is a, that is a huge thing to go to scale. Um, we probably need a, um, uh, public works program in this country to that is, uh, bringing in, 
it's an employment program. It's a technology program. Um, it's, uh, you know, like what the, what, what Roosevelt did back in the depression in terms of really addressing, um, addressing the health of these forests and the health of our water and the health of our lungs and the health of these communities on a scale that needs to happen. And I know this is going to be hard because there's so much going on in our water systems. And what I'd like to do, if we can do it, is for each of you to give me one or two um, sentences that you would like to carry from this this Commonwealth Club to the people who you know in your lives and in your work. So uh, having said that, Marguerite, how's about talking with that for you? Well, I <clears throat> we have... 11 years to make a massive scale change in not just our forest protection, but our way of uh, treating uh, the world that we live in and how we get around. And um, whether it's fires or water quality, um, that's what we're talking about tonight. But I think it's all the same thing. Everybody's got to step it up um, and, and do what you can. Yeah. Um, this is Jennifer that we're going to hear from. Okay. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that, you know, the climate crisis is the existential crisis of certainly our lifetimes. Um, and there's days that I think to myself, thank goodness I didn't have children because I honestly don't know what kind of world um, we we will be leaving our children unless we make some very dramatic changes as to how we interact with our natural um, natural world in California, the United States, globally. Um, I think we have at the state level a governor who's really quite visionary about this and really recognizing the value of biodiversity and creating climate resilience at the same time that we are trying to turn back the tide of climate change. It's not just learning to be resilient, but to figure out how to get back to a more healthy and natural environment, which is going to take a lot of change. But I think if we all take individual steps, community steps, and global steps, we actually can do it. Mm. I'm, I'm actually hopeful. Mm. That's wonderful. Camry, you're the last last in the line, but certainly first. And I want you to know that I've known Kimmery for a long time, and she's always been a wonderful help to me. And I've heard many, many things from her and about her. So Kimmery, would you like to say your statement? Know where your water comes from and honor the source of that water and do what you can do to make sure that that source of that water is healthy and thriving. Let's have a big thank you and applause for thank our you. speakers. What a wonderful audience we've also had. But I also want to re say once again, Jennifer Montgomery, Director, California Forest Management, Marguerite Young, Board President, East Bay Municipal Utility, Kimberly Wiltshire, President and CEO, Carby DM West. Again, we really appreciate you and we really appreciate our audience. This is Ann Clark, Chair of the Environment and Natural Resources Member-Led Forum. This meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California is now adjourned.